I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Joanna Fortune, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist specializing in the parent-child relationship. She's the author of the series of books, 15-Minute Parenting, and has her own podcast, as well as a TED Talk, an ongoing column in the Irish Times, and a radio show. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. As many of you know, Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. There are only a couple Rendering Unconscious books left available. They are the hardback bound book. They are signed by me. And there's literally like two or three left at Trapart headquarters. And then they are sold out. So we have them on clearance sale currently for $12. Visit Trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. Another way you can support the podcast is by joining our Patreon. My husband Carl and I have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 23-C-A-R-L. And it would be great to see more of you there. Right now, Rendering Unconscious Podcast has over 80,000 listens, um, but we've only had the same kind of handful of patrons for a long time now, and most of them are actually from my husband's career, from his photography, his music, his art, and his writing. Um, there's probably only five or six people there from the, from the podcast. So it'd be great to see some of you there. We have a $2 level, um, and up, and you can even pay for the whole year at once now. So it's like $21 for the year. And it would really help out because I do spend basically a whole work day every week, um, putting the podcast together. So thanks so much for supporting. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and I hope to see you all at Patreon soon. How did we even come across each other? Um, I was following your work actually, Vanessa, you know, your beautiful cut up poetry. I'm a big fan of that work. Um, and your book and I have one uh, framed one of your pieces on my wall actually so I feel like I have that sense of of insight into you through your work um, which is is how I think I made first contact with you online yeah absolutely I'm so glad because that book to me it's so special because it's my first book published book and there's so few left I think the regular edition is totally sold out and there's only like two left of the ones with the print oh, I'm not surprised like it's really special um and I you know and it really inspired me I started doing my own cut up poetry but I will admit mine looks a little bit more like a kidnap note with just cut out newspaper things stuck together so I don't have quite the finesse but I enjoy the process the catharsis of putting it together cutting and re-putting together um very much yeah, it's all about the process. I love that you I do agree. cut-ups. 
Oh yeah, and from the newspaper, little random little phrases or words, especially things that recur in newspapers at the moment, which I think is what we're we're going through, is that there is a repetition. Um, and you know, there's something that you know, of course, a psychoanalyst that's very striking about any repetitions. And uh, so I've been cutting out the phrases and words that I see repeated over a week, and I'll take those Ooh. and say, okay, there's something there. And uh, so repetition is maybe my theme in mind when I'm when I'm doing it. And I have a little box, and I put all the words in, and my little print stick, and everything <laughs> like that, and a notebook, and uh, I just enjoy it. Yeah, it it gets me out of my head and sort of down into those now moments in the body you know I really enjoy it I love it I love that you're doing that that's amazing I think that 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 idea exactly like something that's repeated over and over again in the news like that must be so potent and powerful and to cut cut those out and work with them has so much charge yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, just to kind of break down what is being repeated, because otherwise it can feel like we're being bombarded. And actually, when you take a step back and go, well, when something is repeated and repeated and repeated, what is it we're not hearing the first, second and third time? And if we put it all together, is there some other meaning, making meaning really in all of that? So I enjoy thinking about it that way, actually. Yeah, and it's like a literal and tangible way to like be processing the news. <laughs> yeah. which I think is the only way to process the news at the moment (laughs) and in the recent past it's just been so overwhelming yeah that's great yesterday was actually Burroughs's birthday um and so I tried to make some cutups with him in mind even though he's kind of always in mind and that's what happened that's how I started making them all the time is I I got a new apartment in New York and I uh always like to like sage the house like kind of clean it out before I move into a new place you know that someone else has lived in before yeah and I didn't kind of have my usual accoutrements because I just went by like after work one day and I was like well how am I going to kind of make this apartment mine I had a paper that I had written and I decided to cut it up and like sit there with a candle and just do cut-ups in the apartment and then I just became obsessed with them and I started That's doing them amazing. like every day after that oh I love that that's amazing um yeah and it gives me ideas actually about you know when you were saying you'd a paper you'd written you know all the drafts of writing books and you know I'm doing um a doctorate as well and you know have drafted and redrafted and redrafted talking about repetition again and what gets recreated in the repeating but actually going back and extracting little pieces of that could be a really nice way of knitting that process together with a an unspoken narrative because the process of drafting and redrafting when you're writing something can feel draining but actually there is a creativity inherent within that as well absolutely and this this book that i just had come out in november scansion and psychoanalysis and art which kind of talks about the cut-up process um that's what i did when i when i had kind of the final edit not before i sent it to them um i decided to print out each chapter and like take a couple pages from each chapter and cut them up and like cut the chapters together like one just chapter one cut up just chapter two just chapter three and then once I did like a kind of a cut up for each chapter then I mixed together like the leftovers and like made a cut up of the book it was really fun oh that's amazing oh I love that now you see I'm getting all ideas I knew that would happen as soon as I talked to you I'm like ooh, yeah little, little light bulb moments going oh yes I could do this and this and this so uh but it's great it's great for because I find 
you know, at the frenetic pace of the world of life at the moment. And, you know, when you mix that kind of fast paced, frenetic demand of work, but with this insular way we're all living, our, that our physical space has gotten smaller as we stay in and retreat, you know, I think that's very evocative, you know, of so much in each of us. And it can be hard to find a creative expression to release some of that because we're so in the just do it, just do it, just keep going, keep going, that we can lose that opportunity for process. Um, so maybe it's no coincidence that that's where we started talking today was about process and repetition. Um, you know, it, it's, I think the world has gotten smaller and at, the, at a time when culturally our, our world is supposed to be bigger and we're all connected with each other in, like you and I are speaking in different parts of the world today through the medium of technology. But I think we have to process the experience of contraction, that kind of restricted movement that we're all enduring, I would say at the moment. Yeah, it's a really good point. It's like at the same time, we're all connected like never before globally, but but yeah. we're all like stuck inside of our houses. So we're like at the totally. same time connected and totally isolated. Oh, no, absolutely. And trying to make those spaces feel fresh and new, even within, you know, I was doing something this morning before uh, talking with you. And I decided I would use a different corner of my, my office is not that big, you know, at home, but I would use a different corner. So it would have a different a different feel. And so I brought up, you know, the ironing board from downstairs so that I could position the, the laptop and the camera at the right level, but make it look like, oh, she's somewhere new today. <laughs> what doing it and trying to create space within space. Like I do think we're more creative than we give ourselves credit for. But I sometimes think that's coming from this this need to adapt um, to the environment that we're in. Yeah, no, I absolutely have my whole apartment cut up into like little like this is where I exercise now and here's my desk yeah, and here's my analytic yeah. chair <laughs> it's like all these tiny sections of the house <laughs> I, I think that's it you know and I, I think that the nature of how we live but also you know the nature of how we work as analysts in whatever way we are working analytically um, and whatever mediums we're using at the moment, it's been a huge call on us to change and to adapt. And I'm not sure that's always very easy for us analysts, actually. I think we learn a way of doing things and we hold tight to this is the modality I work within. This is what I subscribe to. And this is how I work. And actually, in the this, this kind of pandemic time has really not to say it's been a positive, but to make a positive of a negative is it has really called upon all of us to dig deep and see, can we adapt? And what does that adaptation produce in each of us? Um, and I think it's been really, for me, it's been really interesting, but I think in general, you know, speaking with colleagues, it's been an interesting process. Oh, absolutely. The analytic colleagues, I've been working this way already since I moved from the US to Sweden. I was already working remotely, but yeah. all of a sudden everybody had to switch and like mm -hmm. all of a sudden see all of their analysis remotely. And I, there were all these kind of process groups and people were having like talks about it in the beginning, which was almost a year ago now. Um, yeah. And it was a really a huge adjustment for everybody, understandably. Oh, I think absolutely, you know, because when we when we have to adapt to anything, we have to give something up. And that's never easy. 
you know, especially when it's not something that you consciously choose and say, you know, I've been thinking about this and it's time that I adapt. Here's what I'm going to do. But it's thrust upon us. And it initially had this feel of I don't really need to adapt because this is only going to be six, eight weeks and we'll all be fine. But now that we're a year on that need to adapt, to change, to evolve, to grow within what we do is 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 huge and it's unavoidable, actually. Um, I think that's really interesting. You know, the analyst Biche Bienvenute uh, speaks about mutation in her work. I, I took a seminar with her um, during the pandemic, actually, just before Christmas, and she spoke about mutation in therapy. And sorry, let me just make sure that my other noisy gadgets around me are turned off. And in speaking about the mutation, she was really talking about, you know, what we need to do to change and adapt as analysts, as, as therapists, and that it isn't okay just to, to kind of say, this is our one way that we're stuck in doing of things. But when you invite the mutation in, what, what potential and possibility can come out of it? And that really stayed with me. I, I think it was, I think it's relevant in any time, but I think it's extremely relevant now, that idea of, a mutation and what it can provoke. Absolutely. I love that. Will you say more about her? Yeah, I mean, she I, she's so interesting. So if, you know, if you haven't um, heard her speak, definitely try to do that. Um, she's so interesting. She talks, the, the seminar I was taking with her, she was talking about child psychoanalysis, uh, but from the position of, you know, uh, a question slash statement isn't analysis, always child analysis. Oh, yeah. And really looking at how psychoanalysis is based on and deduced from a child's sensual or libidinal history and that that's inherent in all of us. Um, I thought she was really interesting um, on all of that and spoke a bit about autism as well, I think, if I remember. But for me, the piece that really resonated was the mutation because part of what I do in my work, the main thrust of my work is about play. And play is a state of mind, a way of being, you know, not play, not the, not the content of playing as Winnicott might say, but the act of playing, you know, that really intrigues me. And I think, you know, what I gleaned, and this is very much my interpre interpretation of Biche's um, statements of work, but that, you know, when we work with children, uh, we as analysts, we have to change how we work right we have to lean in we have to come off the couch so to speak and we we play and we play to provoke something and we use play as a language in that setting and that in itself is a mutation to the psychoanalytic process and you know I, I you know would frame that within say you know a lot of what Winnicott would write about in his famous case study the piggle um, but you know I, I'm a Lacanian um, by my core training. I'm not a purist. I say that openly because there will be lots of people going, oh, she's not a pure Lacanian. I'm definitely not. I've done many trainings. I think I've probably mutated many times over the course of my career. But, you know, she tied it as well to Lacan's The Direction of the Treatment and how to act with one's being. And I think that's really relevant in the times we live in. So I think the benefit in, in these pandemic times is seminars, webinars, learning has become so accessible it's almost overwhelming you know I think I did enough CPD in a year to last me five years because suddenly I was like oh my goodness I don't have to go to London or New York or wherever to do this I can do this from my office at home and you know it was almost like give it all to me give it all I want it all and then I was like no I'm exhausted I'm exhausted from learning but 
so certain things I, I have resonated with me and I think BJ's was one. She's a very interesting speaker and engaging as well. Um, you know, so I think that's really interesting. But, you know, I, I think that children, you know, don't need endless analysis. And I think that's also part of a, a process of mutation. Um, and I was really interested to hear her thoughts on that. Was that through the Freud Lacan Institute? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. I'm so glad that started. Oh, me too. Excellent, mm. excellent seminars. Absolutely. I've been loving them and I've been loving all the Freud Museum talks. Yeah. Everything like that. And now this group is a Lacanian group in New York called Apreku. And they used to do their classes like at 6.30 p.m. on Fridays. But now they've shifted things to like 10 a.m. on Saturdays in, in New York. So it's wow. like 4 p.m. here. So it's actually something that's accessible now, which has been great. So I've done a oh, few of those amazing. as well. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, I must look at that too. And actually, I did an amazing seminar with the Freud Museum on Freud and fairy tales um, before Christmas and it was just so rich um, you know it was a full day really intense now but so interesting and so rich and looking at it through the uncanny and things like that and I love fairy tales I love you know the darkness I love the idea of the forest I love all of those symbolic pieces so that was lovely so I find I'm trying to choose um, online learnings at the moment that are fun and pleasurable. Yes, there's learning, but that's almost the secondary piece. I'm like, oh, I'd love to spend a day talking about fairy tales. Oh, by the way, it's going to be underpinned by this theoretical flow. Great, fine. But that's not my primary motivation. And then some others where I'm like, I really want to learn more about this particular thing. Um, but learning is, is something that has opened up in this pandemic, I think, which is interesting because, you know, in the context of parents trying to support home-based learning and support children learning at home, it has felt extremely trying and pressure-filled. But I think that the learning that's been opened up, generally speaking, to us professionally um, as analysts, but as people, um, has been immense. Yeah, I've, I did the same thing that you kind of described where I got so excited about it. I like signed up for too many things yeah. and I was just learning all of the time, which was really good in the beginning. It kept totally. me really busy. I also started scheduling like two podcasts a week and then that's all I did basically was like listen to lectures and edit podcasts. And then by like October, November, I was like, I need to take a little time off and like yeah. reassess my uh, speed at which I am doing these things and maybe pace yeah. myself a little bit more. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. And I found inadvertently between the learning, the working and the overdosing on courses um, that by Christmas time, I, you know, gave myself afforded myself a four week break, because I was just done. I was done done and a bit like you because I do you know radio every week I do a podcast I do you know I've all of these pieces that are around my work which keeps creativity a part of my work and that's really important to me but I it's also as you know a huge commitment once you say oh I'm going to do a podcast now you're doing a podcast and mm -hmm. you've got to put out content every week you know you can't just say I'm going to do a podcast and you know there's four amazing episodes and I am done with that that's not the way it works so the content is a constant demand in itself so keeping that going and you know the, the parts of our brain that that stimulates um, as well as the work and everything that goes with that and oh by the way I better keep learning things you know we're pulling ourselves in, in so many different directions at once at the moment that I'm not surprised we're tired I also think the demand within our area of work has just 
surged. You know, the demand for analysis, for therapy has increased so much. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, will you talk a little bit about working with children and you have this like parenting column in the paper and like, I haven't really had any guests I'm realizing speaking with you that have worked specifically with children and talked about parenting and that sort of thing. Yeah, so I, yes, exactly. I work with children, adolescents, and I do a lot of therapeutic parenting uh, using like mentalization and processes like that uh, with parents uh, to deepen their their insight into their non-parent selves but actually it's this inter I take it through a very intergenerational lens of how we experienced being parented and how that influences far from you know books or schools of parenting we might subscribe to that what pops out our mouths in those heightened moments when our attachment systems are activated when we flip our emotional lids is not what we read in a lovely book but it's what we lived being parented and if we don't go inwards to parent outwards we're missing a key part of the story and in my practice what I had often found was a child was being presented you know to the child analyst this child has a problem please fix problem, return child to me, thank you. Um, and, you know, I was thinking, oh, okay, you know, we could do that for sure. And for lots of young people and children, that's a very effective process. And for others, and a significant amount of others, I might have them for the analytic hour a week, but there are many hours in the week. And, you know, finding a little bit like, you know, we were having this session and the child would leave and they would come back and I'm like, oh, we're having the same session and they would leave and they would come back. And I'm going, OK, so what is being played out here? And so I moved to do quite a bit of dyadic work in bringing the relationship into into the analyst space. That is the parent child relationship. So the parent isn't, say, my client, the child isn't the client, but their relationship is is what we focus on and working in that dyadic way really produced and again i'm back to that word mutation while it's a, a change it was a change to provoke something and i found it a very provocative way of working in a very healthy way in bringing something into the room that we could go okay what's this let's think about this and to do it together and using play um so i i love i love play anyway uh, but i love play with a purpose um, and I think play has a purpose. Um, I think it's super important in all of our lives. I, you know, I think in Western culture, we really assign play to the, the realm of childhood. And we say, well, that's for children. That's what they do. And us grown-ups, we're serious and responsible and we couldn't be doing that play stuff. And actually, I think that's, that's the mistake we make um, is that we, we stop playing. And we tend to stop playing with our children in modern society quite young. We, you know, by middle childhood, nine, 10, 11 years old, we see that they, they play, you know, themselves. They, they do structured play like scooters and bikes and skates and those kinds of things and gaming. And we leave them at it and we play with our little children and we don't play at all then with our teenagers. And that's when our relationships become under more pressure. So I would see that playfulness and a bid to playfully connect is the essence of staying connected, that play fuels connection. Parenting is all about connection. But I would also think, Vanessa, we have to play as adults. And I, you know, play without an intimate agenda, you know, just play, be playful, laugh, have fun, 
And, you know, I, I've in some of the work I've done, I've, I've seen colleagues do a cotton ball snowball fight using marshmallows in an elder person's home. And when you see a bunch of 80 year olds throwing marshmallows at each other in a snowball fight, you say, yes, play is for life. And what that elicits and that laughter and that laughter will release residual tension we're holding. It just brings to mind for me, gosh, don't we all need to enter into a playful state of mind, maybe now more than ever. Um, and you know, I, that's the purpose of my books. I've written a three book series. It's the name of my podcast, actually 15 minute parenting. And much as I'd love to sit here and say, you know, I've cracked it. You know, all you need is 15 minutes a day and that's your parenting done. Really it's about being predictable. It's about saying, if you only have 15 minutes a day in your busy day doing, to mindfully 100% no distractions devices sit and play with your child or children that good enough Winnicott again good enough is good enough um, but using that as every day so that your child can anticipate with certainty that you will come and meet me at my level in my language in my world and we will connect every day that that can be transformative in a relationship. And what I really wanted to do was explore, and this is the, the focus of the doctorate I'm doing, you know, creating a therapeutic model that bridges the gap between the clinic room and the family home. So that parents, children who may not meet clinical threshold and come to you in the clinic, but for whom a small change could make a big difference can avail of a therapeutic process that can be integrated into parenting. I'm really interested in that, in play with purpose and playful parenting, and not just, you know, saying, well, here's a list of games, but, you know, saying here's some activities and here's why, and here's how, and here's what this is speaking to and when. And so that as a parent, I know, oh, this is a moment I need to sit and row the boat or, oh, this is a moment I need to get the bubbles out or it's time to blow up a balloon and I know why I'm thinking that. That's wonderful. Yeah, and I was just talking to some colleagues the other day about that, um, specifically a couple that were our marriage and family therapists, and they were talking about hard, how hard it is in the States to get um, insurance to pay for like th family therapy, yeah. unless there's some sort of like identified patient, like this child has this specific diagnosis, and then you could bring the family in. But just for like families that want to work on dynamics and create a healthier kind of way of being in interaction with each other and like better interpersonal relations, it's like this, it's not covered in, in there. And uh, how frustrating no. that is that things need to like be at this like critical threshold for exactly. them to be able to come in. Yeah. And I think especially, you know, the American system when it comes to insurance and, you know, being tied to diagnosis and labels and, you know, how how much of a block that can be. And, you know, also, I think it, that so many families that would benefit from even a short therapeutic intervention don't get to access that. And actually, there are so many ways that you can bring that home with you. And I think that's really what I'm motivated by is looking at ways that we can create a cultural change by increasing our capacity for playful engagement. Um, you know, if we think about what culture is, like, you know, for me, culture is how we do things. You know, how we dress, how we sing, how we dance, it's our culture. And you know what's universal across culture is play. And actually, if we can 
you know, move that idea that play is the box of toys or play is the world of just children and actually look for it as play enables flexibility. Play enables adaptability. Actually, play teaches us how to, that we can and how to change the rules. Then you get to a place of going, why aren't we playing? Like, why aren't we playing every day? Why don't we look at ways to bring play into the, the corporate boardrooms and our communities and our societies and schools increase playfulness, get kids up from those desks and chairs and get them playing. The play is learning. But there's so much that we can create a new order out of play. And I think for me, that's exciting, um, but it's also very motivating to, to keep talking about it and to see the, how play relates uh, to analysis, to see, to see how play, and again, it, you know, I'm back to that mutation thing that it, it requires us to change and adapt in how we think and how we, how we work, but that we can provoke something, we can provoke connection, we can make meaning, we can have that opportunity for shared joy. I think there's something about play that in order for any of us to enjoy or you know, draw pleasure from life, from the world, ourselves, other people, relationships, our very desire, we have to have experience being enjoyed by our important others as we've grown and developed. That you, joy is a shared thing. It's not something I can do alone. And play is, is the catalyst for joy. Oh, I love that. And I love also, like you pointed out, that it's um, creates a sense of kind of agency in the world as well yes. that we can play with things and change things it's like you're able to kind of experiment in this kind of safe space and then you can bring that out into the world and and kind of work with things and play with things out there as well oh absolutely and I think you know we see evidence on social media of how you know in this pandemic there is that simmering playfulness that I'm, I'm going, oh, let's see what happens here. You know, it might start with banana bread every which way you can. And it may be, you know, starting your own sourdough kit or, you know, little breeder and baking sourdoughs. Um, but it could be crafting or knitting or people are looking for things that they used to do. God, I used to love to do that. Maybe now is the time to do it. Or maybe I'll teach myself how to play the piano using YouTube tutorials, or this is when I'm going to learn how to whatever it is that we're actually looking, you know, something in us is prompting us to get back to play. We know, I believe inherently, we all have a capacity to play. It's in us. For some of us, those play muscles are very stiff, haven't been worked out or exercised in quite a while, and we need quite a few squats and lunges to get us going, but it's in there. We can get back to it. Um, and I think it's really important that we get back to it. Yeah, absolutely. And that reminds me of what we were talking about at the beginning with the cut-ups and the process of that. Yeah. Because that's why I love cut-ups too, is because anybody can do it and you can do it like you don't have to have your own writing. You can just take the newspaper or whatever you have lying around and just start playing with that. You know, you don't have to have any like fine art skills to be able to work with it. You could just play with it and experiment yeah. with it um, anywhere anytime yeah and it reminds me I started um going to in my just very close to where I live with a friend of mine who is very gifted in art I am not but I very much enjoy the process and we started going to an art class uh one evening a week um using acrylics and you know 
I, you know, she was lovely, precise, beautiful work. And I would just be going, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen on this and what's going to go. But I just loved doing it. Would I hang any of it up? You don't know. But it's absolutely, when I look at it, it, it enabled me to experience something. And that was my motivation. So I'm actually really drawn to art without ever considering myself talented in that area that's not me being modest that's me being really real about it by the way <laughs> you know I have talents that is not one of them but I am very drawn to it as a process I'm very aware of that pottery painting um you know taking a canvas and acrylics cutting up words and making new meaning out of other meaning you know restructuring and creating new order I love all of that I wish I had more time for it and I really need to take some responsibility for that and make time for those things because they are so good for me I know that they're so good for me yeah and sometimes um having it not be like something that you're invested in or a professional yeah. is very freeing because you could just do That's it true. like when I make a painting I just make it in one sitting I could never like keep going back to a painting and no, working either. on it over and over that would like make me insane so I just like to like get it out make the thing and yeah. then it's done and I'm like great that's my little painting and it's like no pressure <laughs> and I have to be what I'm thinking and feeling in the moment and if I left that a week and came back to it I'd be going yeah I'm not thinking or feeling that anymore yeah exactly yeah, and it would never get it. finished <laughs> yeah, yeah so actually I'm the same I like to kind of move quick it's done move on um which is of course because the privilege of not being an artist or producing art for anything other than my own sense of process and there we are back to that word process again that it is so important and I, you know, and I think again, of course, that brings me back to play, um, you know, because, what, you know, when young children are playing and you can see the, the wonderment and that's, I love that state of wonder that children can bring us adults into and teach us. We can learn so much for them. I think children get there a lot quicker than us when it comes to, you know, that idea that words are born, they're created, but children get there quicker because play will get you there much quicker than spoken words will and in the wonderment you can see that they even if they're stacking blocks that they're going oh but I wonder if I did this or I wonder could I do that and in that wonderment is that creativity and that meaning expands and you know if if ever you think gosh you know I haven't played in years or that's not part of my world just you know allow yourself the opportunity to observe in a non-creepy safe way um children at play you know if you have friends with children family with children if you're out and about in a park you know children playing is absolutely wonderment in action and I think we could all do with that I think we're searching for it I think it comes out in our are we cutting up for poetry are we painting are we knitting what is it we're baking you know we're searching for something that gives us that sense of wonderment yeah that's what I think uh our adult world is missing a lot is that sense of wonder. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We, we got so fact-based, we got so cognitive and so up in our heads and real news versus fake news versus, and we forgot, we forgot actually that wondering, playing, creating and being, that's what enables us to function and thrive in the world um, and in, within ourselves before we can do it in the world. And I think we forget that we're, we're always thinking and drawn to, you know, how are people experiencing me and, you know, what do people think about me? And it's this external validation and we forgot, well, what am I thinking 
about me and how am I feeling about me? And I think play can bring us back there. It can bring us back to that internal sense of wonderment. Absolutely. And what are your three books about? Like, what are the three in the series? Well, so it's 15 minute parenting. So you can actually see, I realized, because I was, I, I, that was not for you. I was doing a talk and they're there because actually the third one is in front of me. The blue one is uh, zero to seven years. And I really talk about those early years, attachment, formation, relationship. There's a lot of, um, you know, playful parenting, parenting the parent. And a, it all starts with what I call the parental self audit, which is that we not only ask, but answer questions of ourselves you know what was what was it like for me growing up and how does that then influence what I'm doing now how do I feel about how it was then and how do I wish it had been and that question about how do I wish it had been is the starting point for what you're going to now do the green book is middle childhood eight to twelve years I felt really strongly when writing these books that there would be a dedicated middle childhood space because I think we do as a society focus on those early all-important years and then we sort of catapult forward to the tricky adolescent years and we forget that there was this middle childhood phase that was crucial to extracting us from early childhood and actually preparing us for adolescence and we can often find that some of the misattunement that will play out in adolescence has its roots here in middle childhood so I really wanted to look at that and then the third one is um, my most recent one is this red cover the teenage years um, and that's really about looking at how to stay playful with our teenagers and to use play as a form of creative communication to strengthen and enhance not only our relationships, but also our teens' capacity for emotional fluency and expression. So the books are a play roadmap, really. It's about, you know, play for this and play for that and play and lots of activities, but they're embedded in accessible theory about why. So with 15 minute parenting, um, then I started doing the podcast. Each episode is only 15 minutes. And I take like a common parenting, sometimes they're questions people send me on social media, sometimes they're things I just come up a lot. And I talk about problem, here's what's going on there. And here's a little creative solution or approach to to take with this and you know so that was just something I I literally started that during the pandemic speaking into a cardboard box with a blanket over my head for the echo so like literally me in a box head in a box talking about 15 minute parenting and then I realized yeah I should I, I should go to a recording studio maybe somewhere that it's a little bit more professional sounding um, and consistent sound so I, I'm recording in a podcast studio actually uh, now but it's only 15 minute episodes um, and so and and that's really what I'm doing and looking at the next book in 15 minute parenting um, as well will be really about parenting the parent and looking at this therapeutic parenting. I'm really interested in the intergenerational stories we tell ourselves, our family narratives. Um, that really interests me. And can we change the stories that we live by? And if we can, and it has to be in an authentic and meaningful way, of course, but how powerful could that be for taking, taking charge of how we live our lives and not following a trajectory that we are carrying forward? from three generations, but can we actually understand and make meaning of our family narrative as we know it and then change the stories we live by? That really intrigues me. 
And I think that's really important. And that's what I keep thinking of this moment as having a lot of that kind of essence in it of people like realizing not only their individual histories, but their family histories, like their specific ancestry, but then also like the collective of like the country they live in or like the stories yeah. we tell ourselves as like a global community where it seems like we're all kind of starting to look at that and maybe trying to rewrite them a bit or not not rewrite them like right over them, but like work with them in a different way instead yeah. of just letting it control us and like keep enacting and interacting in the same kind of repetitive ways over and over again yeah absolutely no I, I I think that's really powerful and I think it's it's really important that we do um deepen our understanding of our family narrative because it's it's part of who we are it's you know those kind of projections injunctions counter injunctions that were put into us by our parents as a result of what was put into them by their parents that that is in large part who and how we are, but that doesn't mean that limits us. That should inform us, but not limit us. And I think sometimes our family narrative can limit us and restrict us. And we think, well, you know, this is how it's always been. And I'm going, okay, that may be true. That may be the truth. This is how it has always been thus far, but that doesn't mean it can't change now. And I think really inserting ourselves and particularly our desire. And, you know, I think, again, when it comes for me to thinking about our desire, what we want and where we want to go, um, that that's also so closely aligned with play and playfulness, because one of the biggest challenges to our emerging desire for our children, but even any of us, to be honest, is that we're losing that capacity for boredom, you know, and I think out of boredom emerges creativity and desire that if you sit in a state of boredom I don't see it as that negative thing that oh you know oh I'm so bored what are I think great you're bored what are you going to do that's so exciting you know because in that free-floating state of mind something will emerge I will find something to do I will be you know motivated to act to mobilize and that's going to be underpinned by my desire. And that's so important that I have those experiences in childhood and adolescence so that as an adult, I know how to act and how to pursue desire in a healthy way. And actually, I think we've all gotten a bit flat. I think we've, we have we, in this kind of never ending stream of information that's out there that we don't have that time to be bored anymore. And I think it's a huge loss. I think it's a huge threat to us as people, as society, our culture. And so that'd be my one wish, I think, for everybody out of this pandemic is embrace a bit of boredom going forward. Yeah, no, I've been thinking about that too. And like how I noticed with like kind of younger people that I see that they just like always have the computer or the phone or whatever mm -hmm. on. So it's like this passive engagement of like passively accepting just information that's coming yeah. by. And it seems like they've kind of lost this like um, agency to like create something or go and do something that they choose because they're just kind of always like passively consuming so I've started yeah. kind of thinking of that like like even in myself like when the pandemic started and I was home more like oh I've just watched Netflix or whatever and I felt like I realized I got to a point where I needed to like actively start engaging myself and like not just be passively consuming but exactly. making sure I'm like actively creating and actively engaging the world 
Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And, you know, it, it's so easy to kind of sit back, isn't it? And just because there's so much there, like you, you will literally never watch the amount of TV that's available. So it, there's always a sense of more, more, more. What's next? What's next? I don't have to wait a week for an episode. I can watch the entire series. It's this binge idea. And, you know, I, I just think I, a bit like you, I, I definitely did the whole, you know, too much TV and you know it's certainly of the bubblegum for the brain variety and it got to a stage where I was like I need to read a book it doesn't have to be an intense or demanding it's just any book that is paper and ink on paper I need to be holding a book and reading a book I need something different to look at and you know being able to recognize that or I need to get out and challenging myself you know when I'm going somewhere not to use my phone as a distraction prop not to sabotage the opportunity for boredom with distraction, the distraction that's always at our fingertips and in our pockets or bags, but to just sit and look out the window and look around and observe and take in and to measure, you know, how do I feel after that journey versus navel gazing into a device on my lap? And yeah, it's definitely, you get that opportunity for connection. You make eye contact with someone, you share a smile, you, there's an exchange, there's a connection. And that's a moment that would be missed um, if I was staring in, into a device and I'm not against phones or technology or social media or any of that, but I just think it can be a very important part of our lives so long as we don't allow it consume our lives. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just like being more aware of it and kind of having boundaries around it and using it as a good tool that it can be, but not just kind of letting it turn this all into these like sort of passive zombies. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And at least critically analyzing what we're receiving. And you can only do that if you pause, move away and think, well, what was that about? And what do I think and feel? Not rush online to go, what does everybody else think and feel? And I will think and feel what they think and feel. Because again, that's suppressing um, our desire. And I think that comes at a huge cost to us in our relationships, in our mental health, in how we live and function. I think we have to get back to back to basics, back to desire. Yeah, and that, that's another thing I've started doing, like the days I don't have analysis, like like on Fridays and Saturdays, um, I usually just, I just keep the computer and the phone off and I just tell yeah. my parents, my parents are really the only people I talk to besides my analysis. Um, <laughs> and so I just tell them like, I don't have any analysis. I'm not gonna be on for the next couple of days. So if you call, I'm not answering, that's why. And, now they now they get it now that it's like been a yeah. habit and yeah if I, I I do constantly find myself wanting to look at something and I'm like well instead of scrolling through my phone I'm gonna look at a book or go for mm -hmm. a walk or clean the house or like just like yeah. be in my environment yeah and I love that you could put that boundary and create that you manage the expectation that you know if you can't get me it's not that something awful has happened it's that I'm not answering the phone and I'm consciously doing it. And I think that's so important that, you know, the, the uh, you know, our capacity for delayed gratification has been completely short circuited by the advances in technology that, you know, immediately respond to me. You know, I, I get this when someone sends me an email and then maybe a day later say, did you get my email? <laughs> I'm like, Yes, but it was yesterday, so I haven't had a chance to respond yet. But that demand that we do immediately respond and a text comes in and you respond and you respond and you respond. And it keeps us constantly in this reactive 
way of being and actually being able to say, I won't be touching my phone or answering messages or engaging for a day or two because that's what I'm doing is really empowering. Yeah, I've loved it. And then it's made the days that I do have my computer and my phone available. Um, it's made me much less like addicted to it, basically. It's, yeah. like, it's made, made it much easier just to like be doing other things and then just go over to it once in a while instead of like constantly looking at it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, that can feel and, you know, you can restrict apps on your phone and there's nothing more humbling than, you know, every time you keep checking and it tells you, no, you've run out of time and you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, what was I doing with all of that time? Um, because it's quite mindless. You know, you hit it and go, why was I even looking um, to let that those messages, those notifications, they'll still be there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't need to know everything now and we don't need to respond to everything and everyone now if ever we don't have to respond to people at all if you don't want to and particularly on when we're thinking about social media and that that demand for response is often from people you don't know um that actually you don't have to you can hope put a boundary in place and say no i choose not to engage with somebody i don't know i choose not to engage in something that's feeling quite antagonistic i, I choose no and, and that that's okay. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's a, it's amazing how hard it is to do that sometimes. So hard. It's amazing. Cause it's like, really like, I don't know this person. I don't owe them anything. Yeah. Like, why do I feel like I need to respond or like defend myself or, or whatever? And I think some of it is we want to convince this person that the version of us they have in mind is not who we are. Let me show you who I am. Let me tell you who I am. And that's our need to be known, to be understood, to get gotten by somebody else. And we can forget that the person on the other end of some other device, they don't care. They have their version of you and they're going to hammer you over the head with that version until you begin to question who you are, not the other way around. So the best thing we could do is say, I can't control the version of you, of me you've created, but I can hold on to who I am to me. That's wonderful. I love that. The other thing I wanted to bring up, which is kind of going back to something we were talking before, but since you're a child family analyst expert, um, one of the things that I found the most powerful in my own analysis, my own first analysis, I've had three um, <laughs> in my first analysis, was this idea um, that I wish more people understood kind of more broadly and culturally, that like, if you've had something as a parent, if you've had something kind of traumatic happen to you at a certain age in your own childhood, that when your child becomes that age, it's so important to kind of be aware of that because some things might be kind of coming up or enacted uh, when the chat, when your child hits the age that you were, when you've had a traumatic event happen. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's so loaded. You know what you've just said there. And I, I think, you know, I often hold in mind that the best way to understand our own unresolved issues is to become a parent. That becoming a parent will bring our stuff, stuff we didn't even know we had put into little boxes, hammer the lid shut and stored deep in our unconscious that we didn't even know we had screaming to the surface because our children are of us. They are separate subjective little beings, but they are of us and we will see parts of ourselves, we will see 
parts of other people, other relationships we've had replayed back and forth with our children. And I, I think that that's something that we have to give ourselves more kindness about, actually, that, you know, I, I often say, you know, meet with parents and they say, you know, and recently something came up on the radio show about a parent who said, I, the only one who needs a time out in my house is me. I'm having, you know, parental tantrums, um, never mind the children. So what will I do with myself? And it was one of the most responded to questions I've answered. Um, I still, I still get messages from people months later saying, I think that's me too. And me too. And I'm going, you know, because that's all of us. By the time we flip our lids and yell at our children or act against our children, it's actually not because of what they've done or said. It is very much what got activated in us by them doing and saying it. That's about us. That is about where else in my life does that feeling belong? Who else spoke to me like that? Who else made me feel like that? Where does that feeling have its roots? Because if I can go there, then how I respond will change. It will change. And that isn't about bringing your child and saying, my child is really tricky. They're really cheeky. They don't listen. Fix the child. That is about, let's look at how this child is affecting you and why that is. Um, and I think that that's something that we owe ourselves and again, that's the, the, the root of the parental self-audit is that you will get to a point of saying, okay, I've reached a block. I need to go somewhere. And I'm really clear with people that sometimes we need a witness, don't we? We need somebody who can guide us through that exploration and that piece of reflection. Um, but how we repair, I think the transition from being the child of a parent to the parent of a child is immense. I would go further and say transitioning from the daughter of a mother to the mother of a daughter is immense with bells on. Um, and I think there's so much in that that we do need to think about. And, and again, it's not about blaming, although there is kind of a nice way of going, oh, great, there's always someone else to blame for what goes wrong here. Super, I can totally do that. But actually, it's not about that. It's about saying if I can have that impact, if by shining a light inwards and taking that nemic memory trace, you know, scattered through our unconscious and interweaving it with a narrative so that it becomes a conscious awareness I now have. That's an immense investment in not only you, but in your child, in your parenting and in your future relationship. You can change the generations coming after you by doing that. That's always worth doing. So I would feel very strongly that, you know, anything to do with analysis of children involves analysis with parents. I think that that's really important. Anytime you start talking about a child, you end up talking about a parent, don't you? You know, it, that's again, the Winnicott thing. There's no such thing as a baby because when you talk about a baby, you end up talking about a parent. Um, so that we, we have to look at that relationship. We have to look at what gets activated in us. And, uh, you know, when we think about transference and counter-transference in, in the analysis, you know, often we're asking ourselves, who am I for this analyse and who are they for me? I would even take some of that to your parent-child relating because it's going to be different with every, every, each of your children. If you've got three or four children, actually you do feel different. You're a different parent. If I was to take your three or four children and ask them to describe you, they would describe different mothers or different fathers. They would describe different parents. And I think that's really important because who am I for my
my child want to be and who are they for me is really, really important. That's beautifully put. Was there anything that you wanted to be sure to mention that we didn't get to? Anything you have coming up or anything? No, I, I think we, we covered so much there. We covered everything. Um, you know, I do share things that I'm doing on social media, you know, so I certainly if anyone is interested, they'll find me there. Just put in Joanna Fortune and you'll find me. Um, but I, you know, any talks or things that I'm doing coming up, but no, I, we actually covered so much ground, which I knew we would, but actually we really did cover even more than I expected, <laughs> um, which was lovely. And it just felt like such a nice, comfortable chat, Vanessa. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. That's why I think, like I said, it's best to just kind of go with the associations. Cause like, if you have yeah. a bunch of pre- plan questions ahead of time then it's like I have only looked at like what you've been doing and I would keep coming back to that and we might yeah. miss all of these other things in the middle yeah yeah no I agree with you and I, I much more I actually much prefer this style of just let's see what comes up let's see what's relevant yeah exactly what do our unconsciouses want to talk about exactly exactly <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Joanna Fortune. For more, visit her website, solamh.com, and check out her books, 15-Minute Parenting, her podcast, radio show, and news column. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T. Net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a 2-3-c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website renderingunconscious.org A vehicle who comprehended the he, which means mental, is from the accumulation of energy that must have met some previous outrageous, though it is, look, I am a master now, the two one. This they did with a will.
usually show Enter it up. Expert on new fluid find find out meditation focus. I is just mantric techniques. This is Austin Osman partly scared development that somebody of an I confessed. My fifteen years you know of what service a small town to the corporation to and by I me justify say I have never before he tally so charged residual secretions form the direct and vaginals they desire never of the ideal true for the and also of making a highly visually stones were arriving creativity for the many spheres of an election where the previous and the decadent period it runs out literary change and literal coexistence when I die moving faster here than we anticipated maybe someone will try to procedural exception one college because to another trial was among divisions within each attorneys asked for a this variation indicates we think that long norms than cut off the scores should be established the anthology I was struck by was accessible their treasures to was be stored how direct the people good as a whole to deal believe poetry that a miracle would save them. try and succeed